want to say um, hello and welcome uh, and welcome to this week's edition of After the Plague. Um, my name is Nigel Savage and I'm uh, an Englishman in New York and the CEO of Khazan. I'm here on the sunny Upper West Side. Um, since we began this, we've had rabbis, we had a solar entrepreneur, um, we had an urban farmer, we've had Ruth Messenger, who was a Manhattan Borough President and Head of American Jewish World Service. And his turn, our guest this, this evening, this morning, is the first union leader uh, that we've had on. Um, and Andy, for many years, was, was head of SCIU, uh, the Service Workers Union, and one of the key labor leaders of his generation uh, uh, in America. Um, and since then, also an academic and an activist and a writer. Uh, and Andy, I, I want to thank you so very much uh, for joining us today. Um, we've begun all of these conversations by saying to people, you know, what's good about this and what's been hard about this. In, in this instance for you, I know that your mother died since the COVID thing lockdown began. And then just this week, your stepmother died as well. And I, 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 I want to begin, first of all, by just wishing you long life and sending condolences to you and the family and to say, how has that been in this strange time? You know, in the midst of all of this death, that particularly here in New York City for a long time, you know, it, it seems very hard, obviously, but also just unusual, you know, to both lose my mother unexpectedly, although she was 94 and, and lived a wonderful life. We were all about a week away from, in theory, had going to a birthday party of hers for her 95th birthday in Colorado. So obviously, although that was not gonna happen, we had all prepared for a big Zoom event birthday party. And then um, my stepmom, who sadly had been suffering from dementia and had a different quality of life, uh, just died overnight unexpectedly. And so it's just, it's, it's, uh, grateful when you realize that people have gotten to lead long lives in the midst of a plague where people are not getting the same opportunities. And of course, it's just like devastating to, you know, to lose your mom, um, particularly if someone who was as close to me and spent every year of my life, every day of my life, every minute of my life, always knowing she was there with me. And then, you know, the collateral beauty of, you know, being able with family and friends to, you know, her, her, sh her service and the shiva we did online, Zoom probably had three times as many people as otherwise would have been there. So that was incredibly gratifying. And on Friday, we uh, buried my stepmom. My, only my sister was there, but it was very personal and very moving. So I think we're just learning there's a different sense of community we can build, you know, despite all these hard times that kind of weather storms. and. Finally, my sisters have been getting all these gifts and food and other things that normally happen after a death being delivered to their house. And so they're very grateful for kind of appreciating there is a lot of community around right now. I think it, it's interesting. We, it, it's not a subject that's arisen since we began this conversation series, but it's just interesting that this is a microcosm of, in a way, the whole conversation that the world is happening right now in the sense that life and death is inherent in human existence and mourning rituals exist in every culture and both in Jewish tradition and in America and the West they've evolved literally over centuries 
And so all of that is continuous. And then meanwhile, all of this is discontinuous. And this question of like, what is the same and what is different? And how do we put the pieces, how do we rearrange the pieces in a different way? It, it's just really interesting to, to understand that something that can be so jarring can also, you know, be positive in those ways. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are learning, you know, in a, in a, in a good way that having community is not just necessarily a physical thing, you know, and that being able to do everything from go to school, you know, or go to service or do a burial, you know, things that we thought required a personal uh, contact, you know, still have the virtue of not having that contact is somewhat sad, but the ability to expand community, to have something like that, have our conversation and have lots of people watch it, you know, it's just different. And I think my brother keeps talking about collateral beauty that comes out of this. And, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's an important concept that there are beautiful things that are happening as part of the you know, collateral damage that's also going on, you know, to people's lives and, uh, and well-being. It's, first of all, collateral beauty is an amazing phrase and, and, and thank you for that. So I really do want to flip now for a moment. And um, for Hazan, this has been hard in all sorts of ways. Our retreat center is closed. We've been financially challenged. People may end up losing their jobs. And yet at the end of the day, I'm sat here on the Upper West Side. Fundamentally, I'm healthy, I'm safe. And I haven't had to be in circumstances that could actually be dangerous. But the people who are members of SEIU today and in the time that you were running the union are the people who are out there literally managing essential services in all sorts of ways and putting themselves at risk and don't necessarily have the, the ability to do those jobs virtually. And I think I'm just interested to know as you, as you think of the people that you were representing for all of that time and you just look at the world now like if you were president of SEIU today, what would you be saying and what would you be feeling and what do you think are some of the issues that are arising around people who are doing day in and day out sort of essential jobs around the country? Well, I mean, I, I think we're learning two different things, you know, essential jobs by choice that we normally think are essential, meaning I'm a healthcare worker, I'm a nurse, I'm a intern or resident, all of whom are represented by SEIU all throughout the country, and sort of essential by necessity, meaning economically, you don't have a choice, your employer's open, you have to eat and you have to live, and I'm not sure everybody really would love to be working in a grocery store or a liquor store or other things now, and so you know, I think there are people that are mission-driven essential workers, and then there are people who are now, we're realizing are essential workers because they keep our buildings clean, uh, you know, all the doormen and all the commercial office building cleaners and SCI, our members of SEIU in most urban cities. You know, I get to see our members every day when I walk through our own building who are here at work, but, you know, there is this essential nature by who we need, and then there's essential nature by who people choose, by people choosing a mission-driven kind of job. And I just think we always underestimate how economics don't give people the same kind of choices. And that, you know, when you see all the statistics about all the people on the Upper West Side or East Side of New York who've left the city 
you know, or how homework is completely de uh, delineated by income, meaning people making over $40,000 a year have a tremendous greater ability to work at home than under. I think we're just exposing, you know, a lot of things that used to be statistics we're now seeing firsthand. And do you want to say just a couple of words about some of the things that I think that you've been involved with since the COVID thing has happened? I think that, that, that you've been thinking, I don't know if you can, if, if you're able to say some of the stuff about Airbnb and, and some of those things. Yeah, no, we've been trying to figure out a way for those essential workers, you know, to really bear down and pay attention. So, you know, we, SEIU represents all the hospital workers in New York, who, as you can imagine, you know, have lived through and are still living through an enormous set of challenges, tensions, and one of which is just, what do you do about staying with your family if you're at the emergency room or in the ICU all day? And so, you know, Airbnb and the union now in about 12 cities around the country have worked out a way for, for healthcare workers that free housing, you know, particularly those that have to travel a long distance or have the possibility of exposing their family you know, we're working now trying with FEMA for the nursing home workers who really both are exposed potentially given what's been happening in the nursing homes greater than many other people. And then because they tend to be poorer are all on mass transit and now worry other people who are on mass transit about can we figure out a way with uh, the rideshare companies to, to take them to people's homes and back and to get people in some cases to places that are harder to get even by public transportation. You know, we've been uh, working to try to figure out with some of the laid off janitors, because a lot of the companies want to try new cleaning protocols, you know, how best you clean an Airbnb or a person's house or an office building in a way that's much different than it ever was before so that people like you and I feel like we're willing to travel or go into a space that we, otherwise might be, you know, dreading the experience. And so, you know, just been trying to find ways. We found a way to get about a couple million dollars of, uh, of, of, peop of loans to go to uh, rideshare drivers who didn't have any idea how to apply and how to, we worked with them on that. And then are just trying to sign people up who needed to, to Medicaid and to food stamps and other public benefits while they're out of, out of work. So just trying to bridge gaps that are uh, really poorly designed social safety net, you know, is not filling and which our country's leadership is not fulfilling either. And so, you know, we're just in like all of, I think of a lot of us who work in this world are just plugging gaps in, in a world where is not built for taking care of people. So that's, a, Andy, that's a, a good segue to, I think, the place that I wanted to go, which is that there is this acronym UBI, Universal Basic Income, which has been a sort of like an obscure little acronym and people interested in public policy or nerds of a certain kind have been aware of it a little bit. Um, and in the recent period, we've had a, a global health challenge, but then economic challenge that nobody expected. On the one hand, we've had Western governments scrambling to respond to it. We've had our country, I would say, I think many would say, being led very imperfectly, to put it as an understatement. And yet at the same time, Congress voted in and the president signed a sort of like a reflationary bailout package 
that until five minutes ago would have been inconceivable. To have simply put those that amount of money into essentially helping people in need would have been so we can't do that, we can't afford it, so on and so on and so on. Um, it's against that backdrop. I'd like you to just explain to everybody what UBI is. Like in, in plain language, what is it? And why is it important? And why should we know about it? And to what extent do you think that it actually can, could, or should be part of the solution going forwards, if not in the near term, perhaps with different governments? So, you know, universal basic income is actually a, a, an incredibly old concept because there was a, a debate when uh, we had reclaimed, and I hate to say this, Nigel, given that you're from the UK, but after we had won the Revolutionary War, we took all the land of the of the English into our possession. And there was a question of, well, what should we do with it? Should the government own it? Should they sell it? What should go with the proceeds? And Thomas Paine actually proposed giving every person 10 pounds sterling, um, hmm. kind of the share in the commonwealth of the country, which probably was the beginning of the idea of a universal basic income, in that hmm. case funded by uh, the commonwealth of land. Alaska did a little bit differently when they discovered oil on the North Shore slopes as they took and put it into the government treasuries. They gave everybody an annual allocation, uh, you know, of a universal basic income, basically. Uh, I think at the highest point, it was about $2,500 a person. But the concept really is what Martin Luther King said, which is if you want to end poverty, give people money. Don't give them another government program. Don't give them uh, lots of rules and regulations. But in the, the best way to give people choice and to give people freedom and to give people a way to end poverty is poverty is the absence of money. It's not the absence of moral good standing. It's not the absence of a will. It's a will to work. It's an absence of money. And that the best way to solve problem is give people money. And so universal basic income came in as in some cases a, a replacement for, in some cases an add-on to the social safety net, you know, but in some way trying to deal with the most fundamental problem that most people have that causes all kinds of other problems is they don't have enough money and therefore they don't get to, to get to make choices and therefore had Congress not acted, they'd all be working because they would have absolutely no choice if, but to go into work and if they didn't have the $600 supplement that's been added, $600 a month supplement on unemployment, they'd all be even in worse shape than we have. And so it's a basic concept of trying to create a guaranteed income, a floor. My book was called Raising the Floor, to sort of set a, a floor below which no one should ever fall economically. And along with healthcare and some other benefits, kind of would form the basic social safety net. And do you... I do, it's very fascinating to me to understand when does an idea cross over? What is the movement from something being an idea to having actuality? It's very clear, for example, that in the 70s and 80s, there were conservative think tanks that people at the time might have thought, they're relatively small, they're interesting, we're a liberal think tank, they're a conservative think tank, and so on, they're doing whatever they are. And then suddenly things like trickle-down economics or tax cuts or all sorts of things went from being a semi-obscure idea or an idea that was playing out in a small world. And suddenly, like, things are actually happening. 
Oh, I'm just interested, you know, in, 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 I'm really interested, like you were leading SEIU and the traditional understanding of being a, a labor movement was sort of representing the workers, as it were, simply in a contract negotiation with an employer. And at a certain point, I think you, in a moment of globalization, started to say it, it's not just about representing the workers in a narrow conversation. There's a political context. There's a public context. How do things, how do we make a difference? How does an idea go from an idea to reality? And in relationship to UBI, can you trace where you think it is right now in a, in a, in a spectrum from being like a crazy idea that would be great if it happened, but it had never happened? to something that's been bubbling up and maybe changes in the world will cause something. Do, do you see what I mean? No, no, yeah, no, I mean, I, listen, I, I think there are a number of us that sort of started to lay a foundation. There was a, you know, a whole group of different people who had never been part of what had mostly been a European movement for universal basic income amongst intellectuals, you know, that had gone on for decades and a couple of university related people here. But I think there were a bunch of us, both libertarians and progressives, who started to have meetings and talk about it. Some of us wrote books like I did. But I'd say Andrew Yang really took the idea from kind of a, a, a growing conceptual idea right into the public debate. And in fact, you know, in the end of my book, one of the things I write is that the way this will become, you know, a much more of a movement is a combination of organizing Social Security was created, there was something called the Townsend Clubs, which there were 2,500 clubs that sprung up around the country to support a letter written by a guy named Townsend, a doctor, you know, calling for this idea of old age assisted. And I said it would take some kind of organizing, uh, which the Economic Security Project, which I'm part of, has been one of a number of groups doing that, you know, married to some, some big leadership coming out in favor of this. And, you know, Andrew Yang came to me after he read my book and said, you know, I'm gonna make you uh, an honest man because I'm gonna run for president on universal basic income. In which case, as I've told him since then, I almost fell off my chair laughing to think that he would really be a candidate for president. And boy, was I wrong. Did he turn out to be an incredible success and an incredible spokesperson uh, for that. But, you know, he, he made the idea become acceptable in a public public domain you know he held on to it he defended it he didn't shy away from it and i think by the end of his campaign it, it became a much more viable idea but then this crisis of the pandemic and trying to get people money and seeing what it really meant when people only had 400 dollars in case of an emergency you know has just laid bare and i you know for, with all due respect for everything the democrats did when you have to write a 1200 page bill that has some combination of loans for this group vouchers for that group uh you know unemployment insurance but when it doesn't work in florida we have to add something onto it then we give people checks you know you can see how we're struggling to solve a problem of people not having enough money and it just seems like people are beginning to think well you know, as a number of the people in the Progressive Caucus have been speaking about recently, and I've been, one of the reasons they're upset with the, the current Democratic bill is it doesn't have a regular, what they're proposing, $2,000 a month payment to people. Uh, I think we're beginning to see that complexity at times of crisis is not necessarily as good as simplicity. 
And I think the other thing we're beginning to understand is when we, we pile all these regulations on poor people, you know, what they have to do or small businesses, it, it just, it's really like becomes tyranny. We see the crony capitalism as certain institutions that are well-connected, use the system a lot better. And, you know, giving people money is a, a pretty simple way to solve a problem of, of a lack of money. The, um, the, so a, yes, and I, I want to, I wanted to add a couple of things, but before I do, I was just about to say, we may or may not get to it, but if you have questions, feel free to use the chat or send them to uh, Liana. And in fact, rather than me asking her question, Jessica, I was going to unmute you to have you ask the question, but it turns out I don't have that up, but Liana has the power. <laughs> so Jessica, you're up. Feel free to say a sentence of introduction and then ask Andy your question. Sure, Andy, Jessica Haller here from the Bronx, I'm Vice Chair of the Board of Chazon for many years, so thanks for your support. Uh, I'm also actually running for New York City Council, separate hat. Um, also studied some of these ideas of universal basic income. Here's a question I'd love for you to help us put together. What are the ideas to fund this universal basic income? And one of the not so new, like you said, these concepts are not new, uh, Peter Barnes, who owns the sky, you know, tax the commons to fund things like universal basic income. Um, so can you help draw the connections between the funding, the dual crises of the pandemic and climate change, um, and how you would envision solving all of those with one, <laughs> with one hammer? So, you know, I, I'd say, you know, during the presidential campaign, we saw a lot of different ideas on how to raise money for the country. You know, we had Elizabeth Warren with the 2% tax on wealth over $50 million, which doesn't seem like a particularly harsh thing to do at a $50 million entrance fee. We, we talked, Andrew Yang had talked about data taxes and robot taxes, which a lot of people like Peter Barnes are saying, you know, they are the commons. There are clearly people who would like to use carbon or other taxes of, of of things that you know are not good for the world uh, to pay for this, and so you know, I I I do think there's two different issues. One, and this, we're just going to take back wealth from some group of people who've gotten more than their fair share in some some reasonable way, and then you know, redistribute it, which is what a universal basic income could do. Or we're gonna have to do what Alaska or what Peter Barnes or what Andrew Yang talks about in terms of data, which is we're gonna have to, you know, find sources, uh, stock transaction taxes or another place for stock churning that goes on. We're gonna have to find things we don't think are good for our, our economy, our country, or that people are taking things like our data, which should belong to us, and we should be paid back, but collectively, not individually, uh, and redistribute that wealth to pay for what we think we should do. You know, I think I used to say universal basic income was absolutely essential and still think it is because of what we're going to see, which is the termination of jobs at a level, you know, that the pandemic is beginning to show us what it could be, except it's going to be done by artificial intelligence and technology. But I think we're also now learning that given how, how weak our safety net is, that giving people some underpinning to it as a regular thing, you know, is all, all 
also don't need to wait until the job crisis comes in the a better sense of economic security. Um, Andy, I, I want to go to um, Patricia Buckner in a minute, who had a question about inflation, and I think it's a good question. But before we do that, I want to I want to just go in a slightly different direction in a second, partly because it was Jessica who was asking this question. Of all of the things going wrong in the world right now, the fact that New York City has suspended its compost collection is not the most important. It's not one of the top 10 or 20 or maybe one of the top 100 issues in the world. And yet, in a different sense to me, it's a microcosm of a certain kind of craziness right now. The city, as I understand it, has stopped its compost collection because the city faces a huge financial crisis because the city's going to lose tax revenues. Now, firstly, the federal government, as well as bailing out small businesses and nonprofits, ought to be bailing out the cities and the states because it's the cities and the states that provide services. It's crazy that that's not happening. It's crazy at a time of mass unemployment that the city is presumably making unemployed the people who were collecting the compost. And meanwhile, this country wastes a third of its food wastes. A third of all of the food that we produce gets wasted. And food is one of the two largest drivers of anthropogenic climate change. So although on the one hand it's minor, it's also crazy making. And to the extent that Jessica's running for office right now for the city council, and to the extent that you've been engaged with the private sector and the public sector and electoral politics, What's your advice right now in relationship to something like the, comp the compost issue in New York City? The question, how, um, what should a person do? What should somebody running for office do? What should an organization like Hazan do? How do we get the city, if it's possible, to reverse something that feels like not a complicated, it, it feels like a bad decision was made and the right thing to do is to reverse it? Thoughts and comments. So, I mean, say, you know, in the short run, it is about focus, right? I mean, because this is a, this is a winnable issue as opposed to, you know, what are we going to do with recycling in general? You know, where there are questions, of where do we take the commodities these days? And, or plastic bags, you know, seems like another winnable issue once we get past this. I, I do think in some of these issues, the question of, you know, and, and Jessica raised this question of how to find a tax revenue source to separately pay for these things. It would almost be like if you could tax sugar drinks to pay for composting, or you could tax, you know, other kinds of bad behaviors around food, you know, that it would sort of insulate it a little better from, you know, the, the general devastation of budget cuts that will probably be see coming for a while. So I think, you know, in the short run, it is advocacy and trying, you know, I think the mayor more than most is probably, you know, more susceptible to, to pressure from, you know, progressive environmental organizations if we all figured out a way to collectively do some action at some period of time. But I do think in the long run, some of these questions are how do we tax bad things to pay for good things? and you know, someone like Jessica trying to figure out, you know, whether it's sugary drinks, whether it's plastic bags, whether it's, you know, recyclable plastic bottles, you have to pay a tax, you know, if you want to sell them. And then how do we use that to, to, to fund the things we want to do? So, so thank you for that. And I, I wanted now to go to, to Patricia, those of us who are old enough to remember the 1970s, 
which is now definitely dating me, uh, actually remember uh, hyperinflation or at least significant inflation. And at some level, we, we sort of understood intuitively. It was a lesson of that period that governments couldn't print money, that printing money was bad because it led to inflation. Then in 2008, we had the financial collapse. And literally, with, with what felt like the entire Western banking system about to go down, and that weekend when Bear Stearns had gone bust, Lehman's went bust, and the question was, was Goldman going to be next? Was, 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 was everything going to go down? The United States government suddenly printed money on a large scale and suddenly agreed that it could buy bonds in a way that it had never previously done. And I actually remember people at the time saying to me, on the one hand, it feels like this is the right thing to have happened. And on the other hand, won't this lead to inflation? And lo and behold, in the last 10 years, it didn't. Um, and so Patricia's question was, how could basic income impact inflation? And would it lead to devaluation or, or not? And Patricia, I don't know if I've accurately stated your question or if you want to add anything. Uh, to yeah, add in particular, the question would be, would it eventually um, cancel out the impact of giving out income? Well, so, so the good news is there have been experiments in many different communities, nothing as grand as the whole country, but there was an experiment for a very long time in, in a province in Canada. Actually, the US did an experiment in eight cities when Richard Nixon was president and was considering a guaranteed income for six months or a year. And uh, we've also seen some more limited experiments in, in other places in, in Africa with Give Directly. And so far, there is no, no proof that a potential theory like that, you know, is true. You could also say, you know, when we raise Pell Grants, that university raises tuitions, you know, universities raise tuition when Pell Grants aren't raised, and when they are raised, no one's yet found the exact correlation. But, you know, I think all these things are things that can be tested in real empirical ways. And all I can say is, you know, fears that people will take the money and, and gamble, drink, or do bad things, you know, has shown exactly the opposite. People tend to get more education, pay off their bills, their mental health improves, their ability to graduate college improves. So all the experiments have shown no indications about inflation and all positive consequences, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep expanding the ability to try these things. And pretty soon, I think India or some companies country is really going to try it at a much grander scale and we're going to get to see the value of it. I think Kenya is probably the biggest experiment and, and I would hate to say that's uh, exactly what we would see the results there would be the results here. But, you know, I think the boogeyman of inflation has been sort of put to death for now because I think global competition and lots of other things, you know, give people choices of what they buy or where they eat or where they live more and more. and it hasn't yet been the point where everybody's competing for a, 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 the same apartment and the rents are going to go up just because people have a little more money. Um, Andy, you played a big role in, in helping to get President Obama elected. Um, SEIU was a huge funder of that campaign. In, in his first year in the White House, you were the most frequent non-White House guest to the White House, which must have been a, a, a good and an exciting year and it feels like now like a century ago because um, is, is, yeah, is a non-profit we don't endorse or disendorse individual candidates but we're going into an election year 
Now, I'm just interested, and, and clearly in a bizarre election year, not least because normal campaigning is not happening. Um, Joe Biden's the Democratic nominee. He hasn't chosen a vice presidential candidate yet. How do you see this playing out? What are you thinking about it? What can should people be doing? Do you have views on Joe Biden's vice presidential choice? Just interested to know what, what you make of this very strange moment and consequential moment. So the first thing I always say to people, you know, we can have a lot of fun having debates and listening to pollsters and commentators, but nothing matters till September. I mean, if we had started having this discussion, you know, three months before the pandemic, think how far off we'd be trying to do this. Or when we saw what happened, all of a sudden Joe Biden snaps out of nowhere and vanquishes all the opposition in a month. No one would have predicted it. So the world is really volatile. People's memory are really short. Things that seem like incredible blunders, even I would say the president's handling of this pandemic. You know, if things were to straighten out, you know, I'm not sure by September, you know, I'm sure the candidates would all make a big different deal of what happened, but I'm not sure it'd be have the same prominence that we now think it would. So I always say, wait to September, enjoy your conversations, debate with your friends, listen to the polls, none of it really matters because it's a sprint at that point when people are paying attention and where the key swing voters really make up their mind, not people like us who probably have decided who we were voting for before there was anybody on the ballot. Um, so that's one thing. You know, two is I think this debate is kind of tiring of, you know, is it the new voters? Is it more turnout? Is it swing voters? Is it white male voters? We have to win back. And the answer is all of the above. Like we, we should be a big enough and successful organization of people that are trying to win an election, which I know Hazan is not trying to do, to understand we have to go out and find, you know, white voters who are ex-union members, for instance, who voted for Trump and convince them as to why that was the wrong decision. We have to excite African-Americans, however that's done, whether it's done by choosing someone as vice president or the president playing a big role in the election, because I think he has an enormous ability to generate, uh, you know, a lot of focus on amongst the minority community. And I think Vice President Biden has a lot of support there to begin with. I think there are, you know, independents and suburban women who are looking for different kinds of things. And I just think it's a mistake to try to imagine that we're going to pick the right group that we're going to have to motivate this year, which we usually do perfectly right with 2020 hindsight and perfectly wrong yeah. as we're trying to think about it. So let's, we have enough money and enough effort. Let's do all of it right now. But I think that's a mistake. And I, I, the last thing I'd say, and I think we're seeing it right now, you know, in the kind of Zoom world that we're creating, is that people listen a lot more to people they know than they do to advertisements or anything else. And I think, you know, for all of us who might have, maybe none of us do, have friends that aren't sure what they're doing or friends of friends who are not sure what they're doing, you know, our personal interactions and endorsements at times mean way more. Hmm. You, know, you know, I'm sure Jessica could tell you, now that I've been on this thing with this event with Jessica, I know who she is, I know who her friends are, I'm much more likely to vote for her than if someone sends me a flyer from nowhere and says, you know, read about Jessica, she's really great. And so I think we need to understand that campaigning looks a lot like the moment, which is community and personal relationships are a lot more persuasive 
than attack ads and you know mailers to your home or, or random phone calls made by people to you so you know your connections and your relationships do matter here uh, Andy, I, I thank you for that. And, and before we come into land, I, I want to just go off in, in, a, in a slightly different direction, if I may. Um, and you and I haven't prepped this, so, uh, and we haven't deeply prepped this, but I, I, I gave a broad sense of the conversation. I realized I hadn't thought to ask this, but I would like to. Um, most of the people that we have had on after the plague until now have been involved in leadership within the Jewish community, broadly construed. And you've been a significant public leader who, as it were, happens to be Jewish. You have had whatever. Jewish journey you have had publicly, but you're not a rabbi, you've not been uh, in that sense a Jewish leader. And, and I'm just interested to know, and now and, and in this period after, you know, your mother has died and, and your stepmother and so forth, I'm just interested to know how you reflect on how Jewishness, if at all, has influenced you in being who you have been in doing the work that you've done in SEIU of of talking about these things? Has it been significant or not? Have your views changed over time? Did it? I, I'm, I'm really interested to know what, how, how those pieces fit or what your thoughts are on that. Um, so, you know, I would say it's hard, it's hard always for me to distinguish kind of the values I grew up with in my parents who were Jewish versus, you know, were they Jewish values that were passed on to me? So I, when I was 12 as part of I don't think it was even part of being bar mitzvah. Um, I had to write an ethical will. And I wrote about concentric circles with individuals in the beginning and then broadening out to your, your responsibility to everyone else. Now, I would, I would love to say that going to religious school really helped me with that. But the truth is I hated every minute of it. You know, I didn't feel particularly interactive. It wasn't very cultural. It was very, um, you know, religious oriented and not much fun. And so, you know, I would say that the community I grew up with, which was mostly a Jewish community where there was a lot of, you know, sense of, of caring and getting an education and being, you know, helpful to others, I'm sure had a huge influence on me, but I wouldn't call it the religious part of the endeavor. I would say I was, I'm always a little regretful because at one moment there were like six presidents of national unions, uh, Sandy Feldman at the time from the teachers union here, um, you know, who were, who, were, who were Jewish and prominent Jewish leaders. And we never sort of worked together as thought of ourselves as Jewish leaders. And you just wonder what influence we could have had either, you know, promoting different kinds of organizations or dealing with issues around Israel that we might've felt about, or, you know, anti-Semitism, we just kind of hid as, you know, we were union leaders who happened to be Jewish, not Jewish union leaders. And I, I've, I've talked to people, I always feel like that was kind of weird in retrospect. And, you know, I'd say right now, as you get older, you know, I've been in search of community. I, I know I went with Nigel to, to Shul one night, um, went to a bunch of other places. I most of my ethic, religious upbringing was I went to the Washington Ethical Society in DC and that was where I sent my kids uh, and spent my time as opposed to traditional Jewish, you know, religious institutions. So, you know, it's been a, a, a journey where I totally consider myself a proud Jewish person. I totally embrace all the cultural parts of it and I've never really felt grounded in the the more religious side of it all. 
It's interesting. As you're speaking, first of all, I was thinking that Randy Weingarten's wife is a rabbi, yes. and Randy's probably the first major union leader who has a spouse who's a rabbi, and I think that that's actually been an interesting thing to watch. I'm going to send you this afterwards, um, and maybe for people who are online, we'll post this on Facebook, but you had a relatively secular Jewish upbringing. I doubt that anybody in your family would necessarily have heard of a fellow called Rav Cook, who was the first modern uh, chief rabbi of Palestine in the early 20th century. And he was an ultra-Orthodox Jew, and if you'd seen him, he'd looked like an ultra-Orthodox Jew with a strimal and pears and a big beard and so forth. Uh, and he was in all sorts of ways an incredibly radical figure. And he wrote something called The Fourfold Song, which I've taught in the past, but not for a very, very long time. And what he was teaching there in the name of Jewish tradition was what you were doing at the age of 12 and calling concentric circles. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I think it's interesting that on the one hand, I don't think that wisdom is solely found within any tradition. And I don't think that we have to look solely within Jewish tradition to find wisdom. And we can find it in Western culture and Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and other places and so forth on the one hand. And on the other hand, I, I actually do believe that there is depth and relevance in Jewish tradition that actually speaks to the world that we're in at the moment. And I think that edge is an interesting one. Um, my last question for you, and then I want to say a couple of thank yous and a, a plug for a couple of other things, but um, what's a, a, something you've been reading recently you want to recommend to everybody, or a video, or a, move, a movie, or a piece of advice? What's a, a last passing recommendation from you? I, I would, my last passing recommendation is to yeah, is I, I'm so incredibly aware of how privileged I am. You know, so incredibly aware of the choices I get to make for the limited work I do, being at home, having people deliver things to my house, not necessarily worrying about money. So, you know, I, I know this sounds trite, but like every time I walk past all the members of my union who are cleaning our building or at our front door or delivering the package, you know, I, I just, my hope is like we all, after this is over, like appreciate we've built a country that has not really created the kind of justice we all believe in for people that work. And, you know, I know it, everybody's talking about it, but I feel like we do need to solve some of these problems about healthcare and income, you know, before we all forget. And, you know, it's just, it's so shocking you know, that the choices people who have resources get to make and the lack of choices that people don't. One of the reasons I'm such a big supporter of universal basic income is because the greatest gift that people with assets have is choice, to work, to not to work, where to live, what to do, where to shop, what not to do. All my members, you know, very few of them have any choices. And, you know, that's not a great way to live. And, and my only hope is out of this, we decide that everybody deserves some choice in their life and some security in their life. Thank you. So Andy, first of all, I, I want to thank you really very, very much indeed for taking the time and really for inspiring us and for inspiring and provoking me and, and, and I and we really, really appreciate it. Um, I want to thank Leanna Rothman and Khazan staff for setting this up. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Um, I want to point out that Jessica had put in the chat line, hashtag Save Our Campost campaign. 
And I think that um, to the extent that we can, I think it's absolutely right. And I think somehow or other, we are gonna try and save our compost. And I agree with Andy, we just need to focus. There are many things wrong in the world, but this is one where we should punch hard and try and actually really make a difference here. Um, I wanna say that um, right after this, the topic of food came up um, and at one o'clock, and Liana has posted this here and we'll put it on Facebook. There is a separate conversation that Fazan uh, sponsored online with JIFA, the Jewish Initiative for Animals. And it's actually a conversation about animals and Torah scrolls. And I've actually, um, the, the title is Sacred or Profane, Lifting the Veil on the Contemporary Practice of Parchment Making. I think that Shoshana Guggenheim, who is one of a small number of sofrot, of women scribes in the world, is going to be coming in from uh, Oregon, uh, I think, and some other people. So uh, if you're free, feel free to join us at one o'clock today for that. Noon next week, we have Shaul Bassi and Andy Arnavets. So Shaul is a multi-multi-generation Venetian Jew. Uh, he's a professor of Shakespeare. He lives in Venice. Uh, his family has lived there continuously for a very long time. And amongst other things, he founded an organization called Bet Venezia uh, to leverage uh, essentially Venetian Jewish history to try and make a difference in the world. Andy Anovitz is one of the most talented um, Jewish artists in the world today based in Israel. And she and I together were with a group of Jewish artists in Venice 18 months ago working on a project called Living Underwater to treat Venice as a, um, as a metaphor for what is going to be happening to the world literally in our lifetimes in terms of climate change and rising seas. So I'm very excited and thrilled uh, next week to have Andy and Shaul uh, uh, joining us at what will be six o'clock in Venice and seven o'clock in Israel at noon here in New York and we hope that you can join us then. Uh, for now, uh, thank you so much and have a great day and a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Joppa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Joffy. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague, Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdowns, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change.